do you want to know God? Do you want to experience his presence? Michael Brubaker, when he was praying earlier, said, Lord, we want to experience you. And I think that we often genuinely mean this without realizing the cost at which it comes. The past two weeks, we have been in Hebrews 12. And today will be the third week. It was a passage that has been on my heart for a long time. And when I was asked if I would preach again, I felt that this was what the Lord wanted me to speak on. Then two weeks ago when Michael Rubaker said that he was thinking about this and about Hebrews and the fact that we were reading through Hebrews, I thought, oh boy, it better not be chapter 12 because I've got that one in two weeks. And it was Hebrews chapter 12. Um, but he didn't necessarily say the same, much of the same things that I was feeling on my heart. So we're in Hebrews chapter 12 for a third week. And then last week, of course, was the reading, was the scripture reading. If you will, please stand and we'll read through this. Um, I'm reading out of the NASB, so it's going to be a little bit different if you have an, an, an ESV or other version. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers... Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, 
so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. It was with tears that I prepared to teach through this passage. It was with tears that I drove in this morning, and it was with tears that I sat here earlier this morning as, uh, through, through worship practice, both because of how personal this message is to me and the exceeding weight of it. I know there are people here in this room who would be far more qualified than myself to teach this subject matter, yet it is what the Lord has laid on my heart. I've titled this message, A Holy Inheritance, A Set-Apart Inheritance. That is, that we are set apart for an inheritance as, and you may sit down, or you may remain standing, sorry, a set-apart inheritance, that we're set apart, there is, there is something that is ours in Christ Jesus that is specifically for us. Like an elite athlete or a royal heir is set apart, entirely devoted to what is to be theirs in the future. We as children of God are set apart for an inheritance that our Father has designated for us. And as we study through this passage, we'll be looking at a portion of that inheritance. The first section, I kind of divided this into sections. The first section, verse 1 through 4, is a call to endurance and a reminder along with that that we're not running this race alone. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, referencing the previous chapter, that is a long list of people who overcame through faith. <clears throat> it's like an Olympic athlete meeting up with their personal trainer. And before they begin training, the trainer says, look, I know what I'm about to put you through. I know what you're about to go through. It's not going to be easy. But I want you to take a moment and consider all those who have gone before you. It's possible. There's a way through this. Consider those who have gone before you, who endured to the end and received their reward. They will be watching the games. And he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin 
Never encumbrance or weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now we know that running with added weight is difficult. So the obvious solution if you're going to be running a long distance race is to get rid of, to remove, to throw off anything that would weigh you down and impede your ability to run, right? So we have this thought. If I stop sinning, then I'll be able to run. Perhaps if I try a little harder next time, I'll be able to lay aside this sin that's weighing me down. What happens when you attempt to stop sinning so that you can be free? What happens when you try harder? This is what Paul says. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. So why does the writer of Hebrews say, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us? If it was Paul writing this, and I believe it was, then he already knew full well that you can't just stop sinning. What you need is not simply a reminder that you should not do that. You've already discovered, Paul had already discovered, and you know this if you're a child of God, you know this, that you are powerless to just stop by means of trying harder. What hope of endurance do we have if weight prevents us from running and our very nature, our very self prohibits us from getting rid of the weight? Are we not doomed? And Paul echoes this, wretched man that I am, says Paul, regarding this very thing in Romans 7, verse 24, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who will set me free? This weight that, that keeps me from running freely, and yet in myself I'm powerless to put it off. How am I going to run? He says, thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he brings us to the cross. To a reliance on Christ. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ, his cross, his work that provides a hope for us. Not trying harder. In Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 53, verse 5, he says, But he was pierced, speaking of Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities, for your iniquities. He was crushed. The chastening for your well-being, for my well-being, fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. To lay aside every weight and sin is not to try harder at something that we already have attempted and failed to accomplish. To lay aside every weight and sin is to catechize the heart, to proclaim, to drill into yourself, and to teach and instruct yourself about what is true. 
It is the message of the gospel that humanity, that you and me have a weight of sin pressing upon us, which we are powerless to remove. A weight that prevents us from running the race. We're effectively dead. Yet there was a perfect one who carried with him no weight of his own. Who was willing to take on that weight of sin for you. He took that weight. He became the weight of sin. He became sin itself to be crushed by it, to be the propitiation, the replacement, so that you also could be made alive with him. Free to run both now and in eternity. So, when you feel the weight of sin pressing on you, Put it on his tab. It has already been paid for. Now, does this mean we should continue in sin so that grace can abound, so that we can receive more of his gift? May it never be. See, I think we get so busy that often days go by and we feel so heavy, so weighed down with the cares and responsibilities of life. And we don't take the time to daily put our weight upon him. We keep falling in the same sins and we wonder, where is God in all of this? Where's my help? Where can I look? This weight that's, that's dragging me down. It's not that he has left us because we're struggling. No, Jesus already suffered rejection for you. It's that because of all this weight you're holding on to, that you're unable to run Release it to the Lord every single day, moment by moment. Take his yoke upon you and learn of him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why am I spending so much time talking about the gospel and its message in a passage about discipline and suffering? For a brief moment as I was studying, I considered just stripping most of that out to focus more on the later part of the passage, which was what I had originally had a burden on my heart to share. But the more I studied and pondered this, the more convinced I became of the paramount importance of having this in clear view before moving on. If we do not see the preeminence of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can never have a right perspective of the trials that we face. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. If you are still in your, sin, then you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, meaning if the, if the gospel, the story of the gospel, if the resurrection, the story of gospel is not true, we have all men most to be pitied. Why does he say that they are of all men most to be pitied if the gospel is not true? Because they embraced suffering in this life and even death on the premise that this life is not the end, merely preparation for something far greater. 
in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 4, he explicitly states this, bringing sizzling clarity to the hope of the gospel that carries us through the difficult times of discipline. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but that at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So if we're going to suffer well, if we're going to endure trials, we have to have eternity in clear view. We have to have a grasp and an understanding that there is hope beyond this. If Christ be not raised from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. That was about a thousand words of notes for verse 1. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. As you fix your eyes on Jesus, remember this word of encouragement from Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He has already been tempted with our weaknesses. And he knows. He knows what we're going through. He has never had, never will have. And, oh boy, what are we going to do now moment. And he chooses to run with you like the line of the song that we sang this morning. The one who knows me best is the one who loves me most. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus had this eternal view in mind. He had this otherworldly view in mind as he was suffering. It's for an eternal reward. Verses 3 and 4 is further encouragement to endure when we feel weary to remember Christ who has gone before us. Of enduring through trials of his enduring through trials to the point of giving up his very lifeblood. <clears throat> See, one of the most effective lies of Satan is in these three words. You're alone. It's just you. Other people are not experiencing this. That lie is refuted by these first four verses. We are not alone. Christ has gone before us. And many others in the faith have gone before us. Verses 5 through 8 is, I've titled that section, Discipline is for Sons, the Heirs of the Inheritance. Verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now, it's important to consider who the writer is addressing here because of the weighty words in the verses that follow. He's not using sons here in the sense of only addressing 
the male children. He's using the word sons because according to Jewish law in that culture, except in the case where a father died and had no sons, the sons would receive all the inheritance from their father and the daughters would marry into another family and they would receive the benefit of whatever inheritance came through their husband's side of the family. The point here is that the writer is addressing <clears throat> the writer is addressing those who are heirs to the inheritance. In our present culture, this is typically both sons and daughters, so we could use that phraseology, that wording. However, I think the word heirs, using the word heirs, brings this to the forefront of our mind that these verses are addressing an inheritance that is specifically designated, earmarked, assigned, set aside for the children of God. <clears throat> My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not shrug off trials as a masculine man or a strong woman. Do not shrug them off and do not flippantly attribute them to bad luck or this is just the effects of the fallen world we live in. This is offensive behavior to God who has a divine purpose in your trials. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. So we don't regard his discipline lightly, but neither do we assume that this is God punishing us. Take it seriously, but do not be discouraged when you're corrected by him. The word discipline appears frequently through the next six verses, so we have to take the time to understand it. What other word comes to your mind when you see the word discipline? If you're like me, you almost mentally replace the word discipline here with punishment. Oxford Dictionary says the infliction or imposition of a penalty as retribution for an offense. In simpler terms, you broke the rules, bad things happened to you. No, indeed. As I mentioned earlier, for those of us who are in Christ, he took the judgment, the punishment for our sins upon himself on the cross. And by his stripes, we are healed. He was crushed for our iniquities. There is a judgment day coming for those who do not walk with God, <clears throat> where they will receive just penalty for their sins. But the discipline spoken of here is not that punishment. The Greek word that's used here is pedia. Thayer's Greek lexicon has this explanation, this definition, the whole training and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals, and employs for this purpose now commands and admonitions, now reproof and punishment. See, it's about, it's about our shaping. It's about our shaping us into, into who God wants us to be. But the question burning at the forefront of my mind as I, 
as I was studying and contemplating this passage was this. What is the difference between the pain and the suffering inherent to this fallen world that is suffered by both just and unjust alike and the discipline spoken of here that is reserved only for sons, for heirs of the inheritance. What's the difference between the trials that is suffered by an unbeliever and the trial that is suffered for as a child of God? And further, when I suffer as a child of God, how do I know when it's discipline and then when it's merely bad luck of being at the wrong place at the wrong time or the ill effects of living in a fallen world? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How do I know if I'm being disciplined, if God is trying to teach me something through this, or if this is simply, if I should just simply chalk this up to being at the wrong place at the wrong time. It's just not working out for me. And yet, and yet it's reserved, the discipline is reserved for sons, for heirs. I believe that the difference, my understanding of this difference, that I, that I believe that God has, has shown me, that the difference between the suffering of the children of God and the suffering of the children of man, the children of this world, is not ontological, but teleological, meaning it is not difference in matter, in the type of, the existence of, the thing of the suffering. The suffering is of the same type. You suffer the same thing, but it is for a different purpose. The song the line of that song we sang for the offering song. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the, the sorrow, the pain and the suffering that you experience as a child of God could, could actually be for your benefit could actually have a purpose what other hope do we have verse 6 for those whom the Lord loves he disciplines Discipline, this training, this molding, this correction is reserved for those whom the Lord loves. Not receiving correction from the Lord, not receiving discipline, not receiving this training is actually a display of his wrath. 
for whom the Lord loves. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, as with heirs. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Endurance speaks of persevering through a lengthy, strenuous process in order to achieve a desired end. He says it's for discipline that you endure. You endure so that you may become disciplined. You endure so that you might become trained. And he follows with a rhetorical question. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? He says every true son receives training, receives guidance, receives correction. Verse 8, but if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. We see then that the children of God are set apart as heirs to be trained, but for what purpose? I know that I have oftentimes wondered, okay, I get that God wants to, to do something through trials, but to, to, to what greater end? Why? Why does it feel as though that the trials that we face are oftentimes merely preparing us for more and more difficult trials? That it's just one after another. That before, almost before I've gotten up from one trial, there's another one. What, have I not suffered enough? And then there's another one. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe it's just me. Verses 9 and 10 give us a clue into this, into this molding process, into the telos, the purpose of this discipline. Our earthly fathers disciplined us as seemed best to them in their limited understanding, but he, God, our heavenly father, disciplines us, trains us so that we might share, so that we might become partakers of his holiness. I think I skipped verse nine. We respected the discipline of our earthly fathers. He says, maybe we didn't all always respect it. We had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Shall we not much more receive the discipline of the father of our spirits which leads to life? Now, a lot of modern philosophers have rejected the idea that humans must be shaped to become what they ought to be and have influenced the world and many, a large percentage of Christendom has been affected 
by the idea that evil is imposed on us from the outside, that evil is systemic, that evil is caused by economic factors, by people in power. And that if we would simply remove the, the things that bind us, if we would simply remove all these external factors, if we would remove moral restrictions, then humanity would be free and happy. This is antithetical to the message of Scripture. But he, speaking of God, disciplines us. He trains us, he shapes us, that we might share, that we might become partakers of his holiness. Verse 11. All discipline for the moment does not seem joyful but sorrowful. It's not that this understanding that God has an eternal purpose for your suffering suddenly makes it easy, suddenly makes it fun. It's still sorrowful. It's still filled with pain and grief, tears and waiting. Yet afterwards to those who have become trained by it, to those who have become shaped and molded by the fire, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. See, this is why it's so antithetical to modern philosophy. Why it comes head to head Because the message of scripture is that after, after the training, after the shaping of you, after the shaping of me, by this discipline, by this inheritance of training, of discipline that's set aside for us, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Righteousness that's not achieved by removing restraints from us. Freedom that's not achieved by removing restraints from us, but freedom and righteousness that's achieved by a surrender to his molding. Verses 12 through 14, the heading I put down for those is train well Instructions and warnings to facilitate good form. When you're worn down by the training, when the trials feel like they're too much to bear, when the tears are always near the surface and your body feels weak, Don't try to stuff, don't always try to stuff the emotions and appear okay to everyone. Now there's a trend, there's a popular movement in our world today that says truth is determined by what you feel. That's not what I'm saying. However, a lot of our parents grew up, us or our parents grew up in a culture where it was more important to appear okay than to be okay.
Psalm 51. It's a beautiful promise. Remind yourself. Remind God of this promise in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the molding and the shaping. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It's a part of what the body of Christ is for, to provide support for the other members when they're feeble from the training. He says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Don't make it more difficult on yourself. Be willing to take some time to rest and rejuvenate. Remove obstacles and distractions from your life that add unnecessary difficulty. This might mean taking time away from social media, sports, your favorite shows or hobbies, to seek the Lord for strength so that you can heal. See, he's not in a rush to mold you. He knows and he acknowledges your weakness, the pain, the the shaking of the knees, where you can barely walk anymore because of the because of the tremendous weight of the of the sorrow and the suffering. <clears throat> Make straight paths for your feet. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Verse 14, here we see a reference to the purpose for the training, for the discipline that is provided in verses 10 and 11. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Do you want to see God? Do you want to know the Lord? Do you want to experience his power in your life? Pursue peace with all men and sanctification. Peace and sanctification come through discipline, through training. When you allow Christ to be Lord of your life, it leads to peace. When you allow him to be in control, it brings peace sanctification but it's not our natural inclination it's not the natural outflow of our lives pursue peace with all men and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord verses 15 through 17 speak of an inheritance wasted, and it carries with it a strong warning. If this inheritance 
of discipline, if this inheritance of training that is set aside for children, for sons, for heirs of God, if this inheritance is too heavy, too much to bear, you may as well, you may as well walk out. Verses 15 through 17. See that no one comes short of the grace of God. Do you see that God is extending his grace to you through discipline and an opportunity for you to be molded into the image of Christ? It's his grace. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. It's his grace that gives us an opportunity to be shaped, to be formed into the image of God, to to come to this place of sanctification and of peace without which we cannot see God. Do not refuse it. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that he's extending that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. Bitterness is a very, very real temptation when we're in the middle of trials and suffering. If you have suffered loss, if you suffered pain, misunderstanding, You know this very well. It's a very real temptation to become bitter when we're in the middle of trials and suffering. Choose surrender. And by choosing surrender, the root of bitterness is prevented from taking a hold in your heart. Many, he says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it, many be defiled. See, many are are defiled by bitterness meaning they're rendered useless and unqualified. And then, verses 16 and 17 have always been puzzling. He just goes to the story of of Esau, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. For a long time, I viewed these verses as disconnected, as something separate from the earlier verses in this chapter about discipline. From the earlier verses in this chapter about inheritance but they're not see when we're in the middle of suffering when there's pain when we're mistreated, when we're misunderstood, when 
life is unfair. When we're put in the vice of our circumstances, when we're put in the clamp and squeezed till there's no breath left in our lungs, where we feel that we can't go, and how am I going to go on from this? This point, this place that I've been put in, whether it's by sickness, whether we have been mistreated by a friend, a spouse, an employer, an employee. We've been cheated out of goods or money. We've been slandered, evil words spoken about you, sickness that lingers. See, in this moment, in this moment, you have a choice. Will I allow Will I allow God to accomplish his divine purpose in this suffering? Will I allow him to shape me? Will I say yes to this inheritance, this being molded into the image of Christ? Will I allow my finances, my reputation before others to be tarnished? Will I go as a sheep before the slaughter? Will I fully surrender to the trials? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. How badly do you want to know the Lord? How badly do you want to experience his power in your life? How badly do you want to experience that freedom of this self-protection, this desire to keep up a certain facade, a certain way in which people should see me, a certain self-respect that I carry with me that should not be tarnished. How dare they speak about me in this way? How dare they do this to me? How dare I be sick all the time if if other people are healthy? Or here's a real one. How dare I be single if everyone else my age is married? Will you allow God to shape you? Will you accept the blessing of the inheritance of discipline? Will you accept it and reject the immediate gratification, 
See, Esau, for the immediate gratification of his natural desires, forfeited his inheritance. Who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, he desired to inherit the blessing. Afterwards, he saw that it was a blessing. He desired to inherit it. He was rejected, for he found no place with repentance, though he sought it with tears. See, if you give in to bitterness, if you give in to building up walls, and we become jaded and disgruntled and hardened and calloused by the trials, There's no going back later. There's an opportunity for repentance of the bitterness. But there's no opportunity for you to go back and be shaped by that experience that has passed you by. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing... What is the blessing? He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. He wanted to go back, but the opportunity had passed him by. There is a freedom and a peace that comes through surrendering to the shaping and the discipline that cannot be achieved any other way. God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are higher than ours. Will we be willing in the trials? I do not say this lightly. It is something that God has worked in my heart. It is not something that I always find within me, but it's something that I find growing more and more. That when I feel misunderstood, when I feel mistreated, rather than giving in to the temptation of self-preservation, of self-defense, of why me? Rather, rather, they, rather to say thank you for the opportunity
to be conformed into the image of Christ. John, Dr. John Lennox asked this question in a talk he gave at Harvard Medical School on the problem of pain and suffering in the world. Even though my message this morning is more specifically a biblical Christian perspective of discipline, of the training and the shaping process that God wants to put us through, rather than the rather than the broader topic of pain and suffering addressed by Dr. Lennox's talk. There is a quote from it that I want to share because it's very applicable for us. He said, quote, Granted that it's messy. Granted that this world is full of two things, beauty and barbed wire. Is there any evidence anywhere that there is a God you could trust with it ultimately. Now the big reason I'm a Christian is because at the heart of Christianity there's a cross. And on it Jesus died as you know. But the big thing is that he claimed to be God. God encoded in humanity. Do I believe it? Yes I do as a scientist. So the question in this context is what is God himself doing on a cross? And my answer to that is at the very least. It shows me that God does not remain distant from the problem of human suffering, but has himself become a part of it. Do you see why the power of the gospel is so extremely important to suffering well, to enduring trials faithfully, without an eternal perspective. If Christ is not risen from the dead, we're of all men most to be pitied if we take this view of embracing suffering on the premise that life is, that this life is not the end, merely preparation for something greater. If Christ is not raised, your faith is worthless. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we have all men most to be pitied for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. On this often arduous marathon, 
you are not alone. There is one who runs beside you. He will guide you safely home. Cast your every weight upon him. Trust your all into his care. Though the training nearly crushing, eternal rest will meet you there. As an heir, you are partaker, painful gift of discipline. If you now choose to surrender, he will make you whole in him. Lord, I pray that you would make us willing to be shaped, to be trained by you. That you would make us willing to become partakers in your death so that we can also rise with you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.